0: Hi there, Tyler Buckingham here, and I want to thank you for supporting Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As part of our effort to improve our content and expand our audience, we'd love it if you could take 10 minutes and let us know more about you and how we can bring the best possible coastal content to you in the future. I promise it's quick and easy. Just go to coastalnewstoday.com to find the survey. Thank you so much.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Big Tourism on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I am your host, Erica Sears, bringing destination management, thought leadership, unique partnerships, and outstanding destination projects to you. I thought we would start this episode by taking a walk down the old memory lane. So not too long ago, I lived and worked on the beautiful Balearic Island of Mallorca. And at the time, I was on the front line of tourism, working daily in a scuba dive shop. And I remember um, looking back, you know, the different nationalities that would come to the island according to which week had the cheapest flights from whatever country in in Europe. I also recall while I was diving through clear, astoundingly blue waters that my Mayorkin friends would mention preserving water during the summer when there was a drought especially due to the amount of tourists on the island i remember diving in an area that had i believe zero protections and to be honest not a lot of fish or species to point out to my clients and then diving in a marine reserve or marine protected area i'm not sure what it was classified as closer to the city of palma and my breath being taken away Okay, maybe not taken away because I was scuba diving, but being taken away by the species I encountered, including giant groupers and tiny, delicate seahorses. It wasn't until I came back to the States and started working in destination management and tourism management that I look back on my time in Mallorca and wonder what the heck was going on there. Where were conservation groups showing up? Was tourism being mitigated by any entity? I know locals weren't always happy with the kind of tourism they were experiencing, but was anyone listening? So to help us answer these questions and actually address it to the entire Mediterranean region, we have an expert on big tourism today to give us all the insights. Carla Danaluti is the Ecosystem Program Officer for the International Union for Conservation of Nature IUCN Mediterranean Region. This includes project management for Destimed, Mediterranean Experience of Ecotourism, and Life Adapta Med, as well as project coordination of the IUCN Green List of Protected Areas in the Mediterranean. Somehow, in addition to all of these responsibilities, she's also the secretary of the Mediterranean Experience of Ecotourism Network called Meet. Welcome to the show, Carla, and thanks so much for joining me
2: today. Hi. Hi, Erica. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, so exciting to connect with you um, from so far away. So looking, you know, just looking at your LinkedIn profile, my listeners know I love LinkedIn and getting to know some of your colleagues. It's very clear that you're incredibly committed to the Mediterranean region. So I thought I would start by asking, where does this dedication to the Mediterranean region come from? Well, uh,
2: I think it comes from the fact that I'm Italian. So this is where I am from. This is my home. I'm an Italian person living now in Spain and and so conserving and, let's say, protecting my home where I'm living and where I'm, all my friends live, my family. And this is such a beautiful Uh, Biodiversity hotspot here of the world. Well, I think that's the motivation that drives me, especially.
1: Yeah, I believe that. I feel the same way. I live on the Oregon coast and work for the Oregon coast, Um, and I feel like a lot of my passion comes from being in the region that I am working for. Um, How have you personally seen your own community? Whether that's where you live now, which I believe is Malaga, or your community in Italy. How has it changed over the past decade or so with tourism?
2: Well, I think I will respond thinking about Spain and, and Malaga, because now I'm located in a, a coastal city of the Mediterranean. While well, before in Italy, I was living in a small village in the mountains that doesn't really receive a lot of tourism. But since I live here and it's been 10 years today, uh, I, I could really see a huge, huge change in the trends of of, of, especially the city structure and the way mm, tourism is becoming a a very important aspect of it, but it's going to be too far. Um, Of course, now we're talking during a COVID situation. So things are, uh, are a bit different as you can imagine, but let's say that before that uh, Malaga was really, really growing as a tourism destination in, um, Of the Mediterranean and it was growing I would say too much uh, creating a lot of tensions between uh, residents and well uh, tourism as well of the use of resources that are here in this in this area so uh, I don't have a very very positive let's say image of all this big tourist boom that we are uh, suffering in the Mediterranean yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, identifying the tensions between local communities and visitors is one sign of over-tourism. And then you also mention a strain on local resources as another mm. factor of over-tourism. Um, I think that those, it is important to identify, you know, when people say, well, we have too much tourism here. Getting down to why, you know, how are you defining too much tourism? Is it because you don't like more people in your area? Or is it really, you know, relatable factors like the two you mentioned? Um, So you said that you kind of have a bad vibe, understandably, about the amount of tourism in the Mediterranean region. I'm always curious, um, as someone who just respects my elders, when you talk to older generations, whether that's um, in your family or your friend group in Malaga, what do the older generations say about the change that they have witnessed with tourism?
2: Well, I uh, I I don't think I have like a, there's just one answer to that. It really depends on the person you're asking the question. But let's say that if you talk to someone that has gone through the civil war in Spain and maybe uh, had to face a lot of um, financial and economic constraints through their life, uh, they really see this as 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 a big change, as a big positive change, because all of a sudden they could see work opportunities, they could see uh, their territory becoming more, uh, let's say, developed and so on and so forth. But when, and if you talk with someone that maybe hasn't gone through that uh, same um, uh, amount of, uh, let's say, hard experiences in life, then the the, the response might change and they would be more like regretting the fact that has gone too far. Uh, especially if i'm thinking about here the costa del sol what is the um, urbanization of the coastline where before you could see s- sand dunes and, and let's say natural areas now it's really everything is built up so yeah
1: yeah i agree i think having that differing you know opinions between older generations and I love how we just right away bring up that economic benefit. And so when we have the economic benefit affecting our natural resources and tensions, it's the perfect combination for tourism. So mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks for setting the scene. We um, you know, with, I think everyone has a vision in their mind of what the Mediterranean is, those blue waters, the idea of this pristine paradise. Um, But I'm hoping today we can jump into some of the some of the realities of what tourism is bringing to your region and the different roles and projects you have to address that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the first thing I thought we would jump into is your official role with the IUCN Mediterranean as the ecosystem program officer. So can you remind our listeners again what IUCN stands for and what its overall goals are in the Mediterranean region?
2: Sure. So the the IUCN is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. We are an international NGO, which uh, was created in 1948. It's one of the the oldest and and the biggest that uh, we have um, in the world. And let's say our mission is to conserve uh, biodiversity and support sustainable development around the world. These are, let's say, just to simplify a bit
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: our vision, we have offices all around the world that are, uh, let's say, working for supporting the uh, conservation in the areas where they are located. Our headquarters are in Switzerland. And here in the Mediterranean, where I'm working, we have a center for uh, the Mediterranean cooperation, the IUCN Center for Mediterranean Cooperation. And our mandate is actually to support and uh, conserve the Mediterranean basin and uh, ensure a sustainable development of it as well. So our effort, we are a cooperation center. So we we really put a lot of um, interest in in what is the north-south cooperation. Because you need to consider the Mediterranean as the complex geographical entity that it is because we have Europe, we have the Balkans, we have North Africa, we have Middle East, all together, let's say, operating uh, in the same area with this sharing the same sea and the same resources. So for us cooperating and making sure that, let's say, we are addressing together the threats uh, for the territory, it's, it's extremely important.
1: Yeah. I'm just, if I had popcorn over here, I would just be wolfing it down. (laughs) I love this kind of stuff. Um, you know, my background is international studies. So I'm just so grasping on the table here, but, um, so that's amazing. Even just the title that you have, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, sounds like something from a movie. To be totally honest, I hadn't heard of it before, but it's just incredible that it's been around for so long, that it's you know, in different regions around the world. So we have this really magnificent overall goals um, in a really complex region. And how does Carla fit into all of that, um, you know, based out of Malaga? What is it that you do?
2: Yeah, well, um, I'm supporting the ecosystem program, and let's say that um, mostly what we're trying to do is to um, strengthen the role of protected areas in the ter- in the in the in the region. So on one hand, helping them identify what's how's the best way to manage their territory so that they can actually achieve the conservation objective that is being created for and this is something that we are addressing to this uh, international standard which is called the IUCN green list and on the other hand and I think that this is most related also to the to the um, to you and, and 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 this speech that we are having um, I'm trying to support Mediterranean protected areas in facing the challenge of tourists all the tourists that they receive and making sure that um they, they are able to monitor what's happening in their territories, but they are also taking opportunities from the, the flows of tourists that they receive uh, by creating small, let's say, and, and sustainable ecotourism itineraries and product that then they can benefit, benefit off uh, from, let's say, a socioeconomic but also a conservation perspective.
1: And I'm curious, when you say they, you know, and they are trying to work on their marine protected areas or they are addressing tourism, who is they? Are those local governments? Is that conservation groups? Are those destination management organizations?
2: Well, let's say that we're mostly operating with protected area managers. So when I say they, I mean them. So protected areas here in Europe uh, are, the majority of them are uh, like administrative units. So it's part of the public system. And yeah, let's say our target audience are, are protected area managers. We try to provide them with the tools and the capacities to, to work with the tourism sector, to, to, to con- have conversations with the tourism sectors and make sure that, uh, let's say, the expectations of both are met.
1: Yes, perfect. I just wanted to clear that up. Um, I always like to know exactly who's doing what. Mm -hmm. So in a video that I watched related to the work that you do um, on one of the websites we'll talk about today, one of your colleagues was quoted saying, conservation organizations in the tourism industry need to work together. They don't know each other and there needs to be something some organization or initiative to bring these two industries together. I read that and was like, yes, here too. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us what it's like on a day-to-day basis working with these different marine protected areas, you know, trying to get them to address the tourism industry. As you mentioned earlier, we have multiple countries and regions and languages and government funding. Like to me, this sounds totally wild maybe even fun. Um, What is it like? And if you can even be honest, what are some of the challenges working with such a diverse group?
2: Well, well, there are many. And uh, of course, um, the complexities here are big because we are talking about, if if we're talking from a, let's say, tourism perspective, we are talking about Italy, France, and Spain, which are major tourism destinations And then on the other hand, we have Albania and maybe Tunisia and many other places that are still there uh, on the rise or trying to differentiate the type of tourists that they want. So, again, I don't think that this complexity makes that there's no single answer to this. We work in destinations. When I say destination, I mean protected areas uh, that are pretty advanced and pretty used to work with the... um, let's say, local stakeholders, including tourism uh, operators. So there's like a tradition of uh, participation and the things go pretty smoothly. So in there, I would say it's easy and it's not thanks to us, but to to the uh, historic, let's say, relations that were being built. Uh, In some other places, there are a lot of resistance instead of opening up, uh, especially because of this, let's say, Uh, need for maintaining conservation separated from economic uh, operations on one hand, uh, and this is from the conservationist perspective, then the tourist operators maybe do not want to work with the public sector because they know of of some limitations, right, and maybe slow uh, reaction to, to, to activities and responses. So... I think there's a mix and uh, some places, in some places it's more easy than, than others, but our goal is to try that, to reach a level where all of them can have a, a let's say, fluid conversation between sectors. And, and we, we hope to do that also by sharing experiences from those that are a bit more advanced.
1: That's perfect. We we do that sometimes where we work in one part of our region and we call it a pilot program, and then we show how successful it is, and then start you know trying to implement that in other part of our regions. Um, I'm just so impressed. You know, I work only in 363 miles. I think the Mediterranean is over you know, 20,000 miles of coastline. (laughs) Um, and everyone speaks the same language. Everyone's in the same country in the same state. And still sometimes I have conversations where I'm like, it would be so great to have you come to this meeting. And they're like, well, I don't work with that group. And you're like, come on. So, um, I was kind of chuckling, thinking that you're doing this at, at a way larger scale and just the ability to, to get all these groups together. Um, you must be a real wizard with the interpersonal skills <laughs> for all
2: these different cultures. But let's say that we we have more of a coordination role, and we count with the support of locally. We give a lot of let's say uh, tangible roles to these projected areas, and we want them to be the let's say the uh, the engine, no, for launching the the processes in their destination. So we are let's say behind the scenes uh, trying to support and telling them the best ways to go ahead but let's say the day-to-day relationship it's it's not managed directly by us
1: yeah i love that behind the scenes i feel like a lot of destination management tourism management is behind the scenes um you know we're kind of invisible in the background going crazy so (laughs) glad to hear that it's the, the same situation over there um, well, that's great. I'm glad we kind of set the scene a little bit with, you know, what the IUCN Mediterranean is. And so from there, you do a lot of project management. And in your introduction, I mentioned Desti Med, Meet Project, and the Meat Network. And so before we really jump into a lot of questions, I thought maybe you could help me define what those different projects are and kind of how they work together.
2: Sure. So it's a bit retaking what I was mentioning now, you know, this this work that we're doing in, in tourism. But Let's say that um, the point is, why is it a conservation organization as, as ours working in, in tourism? So as I was saying, in the Med, Mediterranean, we do consider tourism as well as a, as a threat, but also an opportunity so we really wanted to make sure we provided these protected areas that are here so the areas where the conservation is still uh, a priority with the tools and capacities for um, um, managing the tourism that they receive but also making sure that the type of tourist that goes there uh, is a different one it's not just like visitors that go on sunday and spend their four hours and make a mess but it was really have the capacity to attract a different type of of tourism that uh, supports also the the destination. So we started, I would say, I think it was 2014 with this initiative. It's it's a long path that we (laughs) had with different projects in between. Um, And we begin with this idea of really being able to set up Uh, the Mediterranean as an ecotourism destination. This is uh, our final vision, you know. And that we were lucky enough to have a very big project funded, which was called the uh, Mediterranean Experience of Ecotourism Project, MEET. From there, then everything was started. And the project allowed us to put, let's say, the first steps in this definition of um, the type of tourism that we think it's, the right one for protected areas of the Mediterranean and help defining how uh, it should look like and actually create a process uh, for product development, for ecotourist product development adapted to the protected areas of the Mediterranean. So in, in MEAT, we worked, I think in I think it was 20 or 23 protected areas from north to south of, of the Mediterranean. After that, we, we entered the second phase of uh, funding and we got another project that was called Estimate and where we continued to strengthen, let's say, the product development process that we set up. But we also decided to go a bit uh, beyond that and not only look at how to set up a good product and how to promote it and, and all these things, but we wanted to make sure as well that The sustainability of the products that that we were setting up was something that we could show and prove. Therefore, we partnered with the Global Footprint Network and we created a system to evaluate the ecological footprint of all the itineraries that we set up. So DestiMed really helped us in, let's say, putting some numbers to sustainability of, um, of our initiatives. DestiMed worked in additional 13 protected areas And nowadays, there's a third phase of of, uh, funding that we were lucky enough to get, which is still part of the same initiative, which is called Destimate Plus. And we are going now beyond what is the simple, let's say environmental sustainability, but we are looking also at social and economic indicators, as well as we are trying to involve, um, let's say regional authorities uh, of the destination where we work, to make sure that what we are doing gets uh, adopted at policy level so that we can really make an impact and have some replication of that. So this is, let's say, a bit the, uh, the process of, of projects we, we are managing of the initiative. But in parallel, and then I, I close, we didn't want that this, all this initiative just finished in, in projects and where funding ends and then we are done. So, we actually created a new association, which is the MEAT Network, the Mediterranean Experience of Ecotourism Network, that gathers all the protected areas that have been working with us throughout all these projects that I'm mentioning. And what we're doing in the MEAT Network, we are some sort of DMO. We try to support and maintain the quality of the products, itineraries that we set up. But let's say the most innovative thing for us is that we are helping these products to reach the market and by creating let's say contacts with the inbound tour operators promoting uh, all the work that we're doing going to fairs and let's say that we're really trying to uh, go beyond uh, just strategic planning and projects about to make something real out of all what we're doing and yeah
0: the american shoreline podcast network and coastalnewstoday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new coastal resilience department headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
1: Yes, that is incredibly impressive. Um, Thank you for sort of outlining it in a timeline like that. I was looking at this um, and I was like, oh, well, maybe this came first. Oh, no, maybe this came first. I'm like, ooh, a network came out of it. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think it's... Sometimes the tourism ecosystem in Oregon is very confusing for people because there's so many actors and organizations and projects going on and people get really frustrated trying to navigate it and I always say you know we're actually so fortunate that so many people are tackling tourism and working within tourism that is complicated and I felt that way as well when I was looking at some of these projects and these different countries and marine protected areas. um, I was like, there's a lot of work being done. And that is super exciting. And it's nice to um, kind of have a better idea of how it started and where it's going. So I thought we would back up a little bit. Um, Most of these projects use the word transform. You know, we want to transform The current tourism or ecotourism that can be transformed. Um, So transforming, let's start with what we're trying to change. And so what kind of tourist behaviors, I know you talked about this earlier of coming to the beach for just a couple of hours, you know, what's your idea of just like the worst tourist in the Mediterranean. Like what is the definition? And I have a few of my own. Um, It would be a large British man dropping an ice cream cone on the beach and screaming at his kids. Um, That's what I saw a lot in Mallorca. Um, But I'm curious, you know, what's kind of like the the bad image, the bad guy vision of tourism?
2: All right. So thinking about projected areas because then you – there's different. Eh? You might have the ones that go to cities that they get very drunk, etc. But let's think about protected areas or so let's say natural destinations. In there, the let's say problem is um, the, the the quantity of tourists that they receive in summer. Uh, the fact that they go there for a very very short amount of time and they simply go to the beach, stay there, maybe go back to their hotel, and that's it. So they are not uh, supporting local community development. They are just overgrounding the beach, moving around by car or or, or whatever it is, e- eating not even local food and just being closed up in a bubble. And let's say that's that, that can be a representation of the worst case. Or mm-hmm. going to the beach and leaving trash behind with the car directly in the front, part of the of
1: the protected area there can be many sure and so when you're um when you're looking at the perfect tourist so the opposite of that it sounds like you want them to spend a longer amount of time in an area Um, you know you have a bunch of research that you've done you've seen different impacts and footprints what happens when a visitor spends more time in an area
2: well, if it spends more time, but especially how and where it spends the time, it's it's important. Well, it can, of course, um, let's say, spread more the economic benefit to different like types of service providers. But the service providers that we want uh, to address are those who are, let's say, respectful with the uh, surroundings and, let's say, the environmental uh limitations of the territory meaning that maybe they need to be cautious with the water use or with the type of species that are including in their menus or buffets and so on and of course getting to know the territory buying locally uh, being respectful with the with the culture of the destination and eventually coming in in low season so not in full plenty of summer where it's already very crowded.
1: Right. Um, We see that seasonality on the Oregon coast as well, where everyone comes during the summer and the beaches are crowded, the roads are crowded. And then our fall and winter, it's beautiful here. There's no one on the beach. um, And so we work on that seasonality as well. Um, I'm kind of curious too, you know, and I know this is more into the marketing space, which maybe the meat network as the DMO has, is looking at, um, is where, where do the perfect tourists, where are they coming from? Are they coming from a different region that we see repeatedly? Is there a certain country? Is it an age group? Is it, you know, is there a group that we're seeing that you're like, you are the perfect person, please come to the Mediterranean. Um, (laughs) Are you able to speak to that at all?
2: Yeah, well, I'm I'm not a marketing expert. I mean I'm a forester, so you can imagine, but I, I had to learn, you no, know, while 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 working in tourism for so many years. So let's say that the projects that we when when we started the projects our target were especially um, North America, uh, Australia and Canada, because mm-hmm. We, we made a research at the time where it was that the demand for eco was was, uh, let's say, stronger in their countries, as well, let's say, the, the fact that the Mediterranean could, could be seen as an exotic place that they wanted to visit, and not just spend one day, but let's say, tour around for longer periods. Uh, these days, we, we really then adapted a bit our, let's say, target looking also at Northern European countries. And but deep down the the I think that the type of traveler that we're looking at is what we define as experiential experimental experiential traveler, I don't recall now. Mm-hmm. It's someone that doesn't matter the the age group or uh, gender or anything like that, but it, which is really someone that is looking for this type of connections with the destination and is looking for something different and and, and really has a a, a, pu- a genuine interest in in learning. What's going on in a destination from the people who's living there, uh, respecting their culture, understanding the traditions and, and really being, let's say, open and interested. I would say a genuine interest in, in learning about the community.
1: Yeah, that's it's super interesting. We're really aligned in our um We also are very outdoor recreation focused, nature focused. And so when we look at our targeted audience, that generally ends up being New Zealand, Australia, Canada. And for us, we also include Germany. And I think that is where we differ a little bit um, just because... Going from Germany to the Mediterranean is not a big trip and it's not expensive, but the Germans that come to the United States, like they are staying a longer amount of time, they are interested in hiking on our trails. Um, so it's interesting that's also your target audience, um, and I've talked to other countries that also have the same target audience. So you know, Australians, Canadians, if you're listening to us out there, come to the Oregon coast, go to the Mediterranean. (laughs) We appreciate your sustainability minds. But not in the summer. (laughs) Exactly. But don't come here during the summer. We want you when it's winter and colder. And um, that's pretty cool. It's that you guys have the same thing going on. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to, you know, depending on if it's the DestiMed, DestiMed Plus, the meat project, the network, you know, there's varying levels of Mediterranean countries that are participating. And so I'm curious, what does it look like for a country to join in in one of these projects? Do you go to them and say, hey, we did this similar project in your neighboring country, we think you should join? Um, do the countries reach out to you and say, hey, Carlo, you got some cool stuff going on. How can we be involved? Um, how do countries participate in these processes with you?
2: Well, it's, again, I would say a bit of a mix. Mm-hmm. And once again, I would say that our target are, are mostly protected areas. So it's through them that they, they show the expression of interest on, on what we're doing and uh, let's say that we, we really do not need let's say, a country uh, approval for it. It's, it's more of a local scale. So we have had times where we joined forces to present these project proposals together and we before identified the areas that were interested in, in taking part. Other times, we given now that we are consolidating a bit our work, we, we receive expressions of interest from uh, from other territories that are interested in joining our processes. And um, yeah, I would say that's a that's a bit of a mix, depending on on the countries, on the situation, and also on our capacity to respond. Yeah,
1: definitely, that makes sense. Evan, um, I have so many questions, so we're kind of jumping all over the place here. But <laughs> we talked about seasonality and the time of the year um, when it comes to distribution. But I'm also curious about geographic distribution. Um, People generally seem to be drawn to the coastlines, to the beaches, but as you mentioned, you're from a town in Italy that's in the mountains and doesn't see a lot of visitors. So is some of your work also trying to get visitors to spread out more evenly throughout the region?
2: Let's say that... Yes. let's say that that's the goal that we're trying to, to reach while working in this new project, the Plus, which I was mentioning that we are trying to involve regions, therefore, let's say an upper administrative level so that they can have that vision uh, in, at the moment. For now, we are mostly working at the local scale of the protected area. So if it's a coastal one, for instance, uh, we have a certain type of problems, such as seasonality, massification, etc. If it's an England one, as you are correctly saying, that the the situation can be different. Maybe they don't have enough tourism, so what they want is, is to increase that. So let's say that for now, the scale where we operate is more local. But as I was saying, the goal is to work at more regional scale and involve policymakers so that they can make this strategic planification that is needed. And when you're
1: working with policy makers, and again, I know this is probably gonna vary depending, you know, on each area, Um, but when you have policymakers, decision makers that kind of oppose this work or don't prioritize it, you know, they say like, oh, okay, that's interesting, but it's not really what I wanna do right now. You know, why, why do people oppose this kind of work or partnering in these projects? Or do they oppose it? Maybe you have a perfect situation going on over there.
2: No, for now. I mean, in, in principle, you there's a lot of, uh, as I said, tourism here is the topic. So Mediterranean territories are, are pretty interested in that. And whenever they see opportunities for doing something about it, they, they try to be supportive of it. Um, there can be a bit of resistance if, the, if they don't see results of, uh, of the things are too, let's say, abstract. I would say but no in general i don't find a lot of opposition and actually what we're doing now in this project beyond trying to involve policymakers at an upper scale we are also trying to um, make different departments saying conservation and tourism work together and this is a bit the challenge that we have i don't know if in your territory is the same, but in here integration of policies and strategies it's very, very limited. so every department do their own thing mm-hmm. and, and sometimes in contradiction. So we are really trying that they, they they have the same vision for tourism development and for us as well for, for territorial conservation.
1: And so it's interesting, it it sounds like, and it might just be through your position, that you have a lot of conservation organizations and you're encouraging them to work with tourism sectors. Um, And I feel like here a lot, it's tourism sectors trying to work with conservation organizations. So how does that conversation go when you get feedback or you say like, come on, you can do it. (laughs) Go talk to that tourism sector. Um, What does that experience look like? Do do conservation organizations sometimes have to convince tourism organizations the benefit of protected areas?
2: Yeah, sometimes yes, especially in, in areas where they are used to, as I was saying, let's say sun and sea uh, tourism. So they really don't see the the added value of having to work in a different way and setting because the the products that we are setting up needs a different type of uh, of, let's say commitment and work we are really asking to the operators that they get in touch with the protected area they go through all this it's a sort of community-based tourism so when they don't see the value for you they really are they don't care honestly mm-hmm. so unless you find an operator that shares the values which there are eh? i'm not saying not but there is to be some alignment in that sense. So it's
1: kind of like the the conservation organization sees value in protecting the areas for the natural resources and therefore the community and a lot of times the tourism sector you need to convince them the value of the economic benefits of conservation which could also benefit a community. Um, but that seems like it could be tricky is trying to convince, you know, if we have a protected area we're going to attract a different type of visitor that will spend more time, spend more money. Um, that's kind of like that. That's where the crux of where you're at is yeah. the the economics and the natural world's benefits. Correct. Right. Yeah. That's exciting stuff, Carla.
2: Yes, yeah, <laughs> challenging as well. Yeah, I,
1: that is. And so, you know, you said a lot of times these countries, especially maybe destinations that aren't quite on board yet, they need to see success. So how do you measure success so you have let's say in a perfect situation a conservation organization has approached the tourism sector they've said hey let's get a protected area let's work on ecotourism um, how can we see that it's being successful how do we measure that?
2: well we have different depends on what we want to measure right so, if, for us, from our perspective, for instance, we want to see that the governance of the territory is improved so that the protected area is taken in consideration in the discussion and, and let's say, put on the table. So for us, the fact that they are already starting these discussions and that um, the protected area is there, the tourist sector as well, and they are talking, for us, that's already something that uh, it's... a it's a, that's a measure of success. But if we want to be really tangible and given that we are setting up ecotourism itineraries, the success would be, did we sell any or, or not? Is this functional or is it not?
1: And sure, and so that's, um, if I have this correctly, is that called the Meet guide, which is those different itineraries that um, are ecotourism itineraries?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: And so what are some examples of itineraries in the meat guide um, that are have been pretty successful?
2: Well, I wish I could answer before this COVID thing, because we were starting this all this process of negotiation with buyers, which is an, another world, right? And uh, the complexities we have also in there. Um, we had a lot of interest, especially for the Albanian um, mm-hmm. products. The... Um, uh, Lebanese ones, and of course France, Italy, and Spain. And unfortunately, when we were starting to include our our offer in the in the catalogs of several buyers, we the COVID came, and and now we are. The intention is still there, but we are still in let's say in conversations in preparation to next. You're sure. And I, it's,
1: I have just totally left COVID-19 out of the conversation. <laughs> um, not intentionally. I think I just subconsciously was like, oh I'm God. so so done with the situation. Um, but I mean, speaking of COVID-19, obviously it's putting some of your work on hold. How does this affect your meet network? Um, you know, are you able to still be meeting virtually? Is that how you already were meeting just due to the size of the region?
2: Yeah, but we we normally had a meeting per year. At this the general assembly. And nowadays we are we are meeting virtually, and yeah, you're right. I mean, this has caused a big big stop in in the advancements that we were finally reaching because the process of actually uh, reaching the market and uh, creating a reputation it's it's really it's really demanding. But um, and especially given we are targeting this, let's say, faraway markets, it's, it's it's even more complex. What we, we are trying to do, though, is that we saw that this year, for instance, protected areas in Mediterranean countries have been um, receiving a lot of national tourists because of, once again, COVID and the lockdown. So everyone want, wanted really to be in nature. So our approach today with, with our protected areas is to uh, look at this type of market as well, maybe change a bit the, the type of offer that is set up and but adapted to the needs of of uh, the, the demand. So I say there's nothing is being done in, in, in vain and everything can can be readapted to, to 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 the reality that we are facing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen that, too, um, you know, where we kind of target out of state visitors and. Um, And as well as international visitors and COVID-19 all brought that to a halt. But then we did see a lot of local tourism happening um, and and really crowding our natural spaces. I think people find a lot of peace um, during like stressful times like this by going to the ocean, by being out in nature. And so I think it's also kind of made us rethink like, whoa, we actually have quite a big market within our own (laughs) states um and we also have quite a bit of bad visitors within our own state i think sometimes we assume that because someone's from you know from spain that they know how to behave on a spanish beach and that is not true yeah (laughs) so are you also seeing um some of those negative yeah absolutely yes yes and so and so your countries are your different protected areas are reporting back they're like whoa we have the bad visitor it's our own <laughs>
2: yeah yeah no but, but but we knew already that i mean national visitors are not like the the best ones all the time <laughs> this, this wasn't given already yeah.
1: yeah that is super interesting that's that's similar conversations going on all around the world here <laughs> Um, well, as we wrap up and people are listening to our conversation, you know, what's one big takeaway that you hope someone will take away from this podcast? Um, maybe if they're a conservation-focused person, um, what is something you hope they take away from this conversation?
2: Oh, that's a tough question. We've talked about a lot of things. I think that the conservation needs really to... Um, to open up to the other uh, sectors and reality of the world. And the only way that we will really make sure that we are going to achieve what we are striving for, which is making sure that uh, our environment remains healthy and our society as well. We need to cooperate with sectors that maybe we didn't consider, such as tourism, such as agriculture. We need to open up, listen, and try to find solutions with them instead that against them
1: I love it I mentioned that a lot on this podcast and um, if you were talking to someone that is a tourism professional that's listening to this podcast um, what is something that you hope they would take away from our conversation today
2: I hope they'll understand that uh, destinations protected areas natural areas etc are their assets so they need to make sure they are protected. Otherwise, in long term, or maybe not even so long as they think, they won't have uh, anything to offer. So again, they, they, it has to be a win-win. And there's a lot to offer from uh, that perspective. And, and and the people in Conservation communities they're open to listen to proposals and, and to collaborate with, with them.
1: Yeah, I think that's great, I agree. It's kind of a a giant call for people to work together and get along for the benefit of your own communities and destinations. Well, thank you so much, Carla Daniluti, Ecosystem Program Officer for the International Union for Conservation of Nature, Mediterranean Region, for joining me today to talk about our crush on Australia and Canada, um, for talking about how conservation organizations and tourism can work together, about some of the strains in the Mediterranean region and some of the solutions. Um, It was a pleasure having you on the show today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, it was really nice.